Hi guys, just FYI, this week's podcast, we've got a great one for you. And at the end of it, we have an interview with Paul Doyle. This is the track agent who has put half of his net worth into funding the American Track League series, taking a big risk, putting it on ESPN. So stay tuned for that. And this week's podcast is brought to you by Element. It's a new electrolyte drink without sugar. Go to drinklmnt.com slash let's run for a free sample. Just pay $5 shipping. That's drinklmnt.com slash let's run. And now here's the podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to your favorite time of the week, the time when you push play on the let's run.com track talk podcast. Hope you're as excited to be listening as we are to be recording it this week. Robert Johnson here. So much to talk about. Are you ready for an October London, Boston, and Chicago marathons? What about a 2021 Olympics in Florida? A D2 runner has run 1337. Ryan Krauser gets his world record, but sadly, the Let's Run.com jinx is alive and well. Jim's Wellmsley. The man that was on the podcast last week has missed the 100K world record by 12 seconds after six hours of running. The Nike Oregon Project gets the HBO treatment last night. All of that and more. As always, I'm going to be joined by my twin brother, Genetic Equal, Weldon Johnson, as well as Jonathan Galt, a staff writer. But guys, I want to start, not with that news, but with something from last week's podcast. It was great that you had Andy Bumble on, Weldon. I was listening to it. but. When you asked him if Evan Jager should dump his coach, you didn't do it fairly. My brother, he's convinced Evan needs to move on to a new coach. I'm sure you disagree with that, but tell us what you think if Evan Jager should switch coaches. You know, I, for me personally, I think that would, that would be ill-advised. I think. What struck me about that clip, guys? You said, should Evan leave his coach? You didn't say, should Evan leave his coach and be coached by the great Rojo? That would be like asking Tom Brady, should he leave the New England Patriots? I mean, open-ended, no, he should not go to the Jacksonville Jaguars. But should he go to Tampa Bay and the great Bruce Arians? Answer, obviously, yes. So small nitpicking with last week's podcast. Hopefully no mistakes from you guys this week. I mean, Robert, I, I'm just – maybe I shouldn't be stunned given that I've known you for, what, about seven years at this point. Weldon asks your inane, ridiculous questions about – should should the most successful steeplechaser in U.S. history dump his coach? And should the Olympic marathon results from 2016 be disqualified, this hill that you refuse to die on? And you're mad at him because he didn't ask these ridiculous questions in the way you chose or the way you pr- would prefer. I just think it's absurd. Oh, thank you. Thank you, John. I, I, I do got to give all the mad props. When I was listening to the podcast and I heard him ask if the 2016 Olympic marathon should be invalidated, I was quite happy, but he didn't, I would have added, my main reason is they also, they camouflaged the shoes to make them look like the regular flats, so nobody knew what they were wearing. But Weldon, overall, very good job last week. I wish there was video of this. Weldon's face looks disgusted right now. I am sort of disgusted. I'm just not even sure where to begin. I think Robert's in a bad mood. I detect a cold coming on. I just think he's a little under the weather. Wait, but Weldon, if he has a cold... When he does the sniffles thing, I thought the sniffles was a take that he doesn't believe in. Could you say this is a genuine medical issue now that he actually has a cold and will be doing it even after takes he does believe in? Yeah, he's like going to be here. We're going to hear this. Usually it's an inside, insider's knowledge. Everyone knows when Rojo says something sort of outlandish. He goes, 
was doing it a lot today. I just got hacked off. Every podcast I'm introduced is his twin brother. Like that's all I'm known as. Like I'm an individual. 47 years of my whole life, I'm being referred to as a twin. Genetic equal? Who gives a shit? Get my credentials out there. What well, well, sounds like you need to do the intro to the podcast. Robert always Robert volunteers to do it frequently, and then he has to introduce you. Like Walden needs to. I mean, you should get your credit. Twenty eight oh six co-founder of Let's Run dot com, but. You, know, you don't do the intro as much as Robert does. Hey, get get his credentials out there. I did think about this. And Andy Bumble, I love you. You had a pretty good career. But when I was listening to part of this, you know, he was talking about his 10-year career. And I'm like, yeah, but nobody really paid attention because the dude was always fourth and fifth at USA's. So it was appropriate that Weldon was interviewing him because Weldon was always was fourth at USA's twice. So I love you guys, but hey. Yeah, there are two. There are a bunch of losers. I mean, you and me, Robert. We we never got fourth at USA's. I mean, we were we were never just barely missing out like that. So, well, John, you're British. Like the British, you know, and the Europeans. Like if you can't medal at the Olympics, they don't even really want to go. So it's appropriate that you didn't bother to go to NCAs if you couldn't win it. You know, <laughs> it's like, that's the excuse we're giving myself. I'll just say I wasn't good enough to go to NCAA's or USA's. How about we leave it at that? All right, I think I figured this out. Robert's in a bad mood, and he's harping how we're genetic equals. Well, he's probably like me, and until this week, not getting enough electrolytes, not hydrating enough. I'm terrible about drinking water, and I've now got this solution for everyone. It's right here. It's called Element. It is electrolytes without any sugar, without artificial ingredients, coloring, no junk in this stuff. It is pure electrolytes. 1,000 milligrams of sodium per package, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. You just pop it in some water. You can pop it in 16 ounces of water. You want to dilute it a bit, liter of water. I find myself hydrating more during the day. They've got cool flavors. My favorite is lemon habanero. Also like the orange salt. And they've got an exclusive deal for Let's Run listeners. A free sample pack. I mean, hey, it doesn't get any better than free. You just pay for shipping. Five bucks. Go to drinklmnt.com slash let's run. Guys, you got to try it out. It's very simple, very cool packaging. And if you need more electrolytes to perform your best, check it out. Drinklmnt.com slash let's run. Okay, well then, it's funny that all this is coming together at once. The sponsor, me being in a bad mood, not drinking enough. I actually, just yesterday, went out and bought like, yesterday morning, I went to the grocery store and bought like a, a some sort of energy drink and poured it out because I, I like to fill it up with water. I used to drink three 32 ounces of water with maybe a little bit of electrolytes in it when I was running a lot, but I don't want the calories anymore. And then what came in the mail yesterday, this element stuff, and it looks amazing. The packaging, I haven't drank it yet because it's so amazing. LMNT, very clever, very well done. But my favorite is going to be chocolate salt. I love chocolate and I'm a salt addict. Mm. And there's only five calories in it. Screw you're done. Element is the way I'm going from now on. All right, guys. So to get to the running stuff, because Robert, like you said in the front, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. I'm kind of curious. We've gone this long. We haven't gone full-blown NOP. I mean, this is the gift that keeps on giving. NOP, we thought this story was dead. And now suddenly out of nowhere, there's this special on Real Sports on HBO with Brian Gumble. I didn't even know this thing was happening. And then I see some tweet from Chris Chavez. He's like, oh yeah, they're showing some story on Mary Kane and the Oregon Project. And um, I, obviously I watched it last night. I don't know. To me, I I thought they did a good job with the story. 
there really wasn't much new information covered in here. And I guess we still, you know, by the laws of the podcast, we have to at least discuss this. This will be our Alberto Salazar segment of the week. But was there anything that you really found groundbreaking in this in this documentary? What stuck struck you guys? It was probably about a 15-minute story. Yeah, John, when I was texting you last night after I watched this, you seemed to think it wasn't a big deal because nothing was new. And I agree, most of the, of the show wasn't new. I mean, but you got to remember, you, Weldon, and me are obsessed with this thing and, and have been talking about it for years. Maybe there's, this introduces it to a lot of people that have never heard about it before. So it was kind of a rehashing of basically, I mean, you're going all the way back to the BBC allegations. The first, they started the show with Mary Kane. She basically repeats the allegations that we already knew about that Alberto Salazar said she was overweight. And then she became despondent, got an eating disorder, and was cutting herself, and Darren Treasure did nothing about it. Then you had the gouchers on. To me, the goucher part was perhaps the most powerful for the, just in the sense of they, they showed pictures of Kara pregnant, how Nike was marking her as this pregnant heroine, and then yet they cut her salary. Um, I think like if my wife had been watching that, she would have had to turn that thing off. That would have really upset her. But again, that's not illegal from a PED standpoint. It's just... You know, I would say cutthroat and immoral, and, and they've changed that. That's the best outcome of this. And then they had, to me, the, the only groundbreaking news was Dolan Olray. You know, he used to be part of the team, and I thought what he said was kind of interesting. And I'm going to play a clip from that right now. Do without asking. Take this without pushing back. Put this into your body uh, without batting an eyelash that was the process there was a powder that we mixed into drinks in a white tub unmarked that came from alberto's garage uh so he'd roll up on whatever day of the week that was and pop open the trunk of his car and and hey powder day uh come come get your powder (laughs) powder day guys hey we're into powder drinks but I thought that was kind of new information for the average person in the public. What Olray said here had con- actually affirmed what I had heard privately from other people, sort of that you were expected to take whatever Alberto gave you. So what, what did you guys think of this? I, I think, well, what did you think of that, of that clip? To me, that was the, the, the groundbreaking information. I don't think any of the information was groundbreaking. I think it exposes it to a larger audience. The Ulrich thing was interesting. I've kind of forgotten Ulrich was in the in, in the project. Is I don't even think he was in M- Matt Hart's book, so it was kind of interesting to see his name. We got some more details on the cutting. I mean, cutting sounds really bad. I'm not trying to diminish it, but Mary Kane explained that more in detail. Essentially, after a race, she said she was cutting herself with the pins of the race, and that the sports psychologist saw that. When the New York Times thing came out. I heard cutting and I think like, I don't know, she's got a knife and is like secretly cutting herself. Like, n- not that this isn't serious. I mean, teenagers cutting themselves is a psychological issue and problem. And a, a sports psychologist, a psychologist like Darren Treasure should take that seriously. But you're using the term sports psychologist fairly loosely here, Weldon. This is, uh, I don't think he's officially a self sports psychologist here. Self-proclaimed. Each time you hear these allegations, there's a couple of things. One big picture for me, I'm shocked Nike let this go on. What about a lawsuit? When you have someone under your pay on the campus prescribing drugs, 
handing out these things. What if Dorian just says, Hey, this shit can cause cancer, a $2 million lawsuit. Like I'm surprised someone, some, one of these pro bono hack lawyers hasn't taken something up. Just the legal liability of this stuff seems very high to me. So I'm just kind of surprised that this was allowed to continue for that long. Yeah. One of the things we all read that I wanted to address, Carl Dennehy, friend of let's run.com brought this up in a tweet. He said, you know, he couldn't understand the lack of details on a potentially huge allegation that the journalist David Scott mentioned. He said that Ulri was ordered by Alberto Salazar to regularly consume a cocktail of performance-enhancing drugs. And Carl basically says, look, that could mean testosterone and EPO, or it could mean caffeine and vitamin D. Which one is it? And I was a little disappointed because they never really addressed that. It seemed to me probably the latter. I don't think that if they had some like groundbreaking EPO confession, they would have mentioned that in the story. But I did feel like that was a little, it could have been clearer from a journalistic perspective. Maybe that's too inside baseball. Yes, John, I, I agree. I mean, I, I thought it was good. The story got out there. I mean, I like to see track and field getting publicity, even if it's somewhat bad publicity on HBO. But to me, in some ways, this, this was kind of a hit piece on Nike and Alberto. I mean, this gets back to the big, big picture of Alberto being banned is the reality he's banned, but there's never been any proof that he gave anyone any PEDs, any athlete, serious elite athlete, maybe his assistant coach, but they said performance enhancing drugs. I'm like, no, when I heard that, I was like, no, not performance enhancing drugs. These were supplements that Alberto thought were was performance enhancing, but ultimately he stopped giving them to them because they didn't work. Uh, like this L-carnitine stuff never ended up working, I think. So it's, you know, L-carnitine is still legal. If you want to take it, if it was actually some super enhancer like he thought he would, every runner in the world would be taking it. So I thought kind of, I don't know, this was done for maximal damage. And then at the end of the show, they had, you know, we get back to Travis Tiger on there and they talk about the thing that actually got him banned, the testosterone experiment on his child. And John, you seem to think that this was definitely a sign of doping. Tiger Tiger acted like this was a sign of doping. To me, I still think Alberto Salazar, if anyone in the world was doing this, this, this thing to see at what level could you be sabotaged, it would be him. Th- th- there was no context there. of Nike's supposedly had the number one spur in the world sabotage Justin Gatlin. So there'd be some reason why they would be doing this. He still broke the rules, Robert. I mean, look. We've, of we've, course he still broke the rules, John. But this, the, 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 That's the, the issue. He broke the rules. He got banned. That is it for me. I'm John, sorry. Like, I'm sorry he was doing this doping experiment. He didn't actually I know, you know, it, should, he didn't realize it was illegal. Shouldn't be slathering, slathering testosterone on your kids on the Nike campus. I don't have any sympathy that he's banned. Sorry. Well, I know. But this is just the way journalism works. They go for maximum effect. They act like Mark Parker would be fine with this with survey because he was emailed on it. To me, the fact that he was emailing Mark Parker, and I've gotten disagreements about this, shows to me that it was probably not some experiment to show you how to dope people because why would Mark Parker want to be involved in that? Why would there want to be a paper trail in that? Now, some people said, oh, he did this because then people would realize that it's a, it's a paper trail, like reverse psychology. Big picture, three things. One, it's nuts. Mark Parker is involved in the testosterone experiment. Now, Berto Salazar and his kids, that he's into that detail. It's just crazy. Huge liability concerns. Number two, Mary Kane, she was a kid. She may have been a legal adult but for some of this, but in over her head, I would have told her parents, never go there. You're not ready for this. We, a lot of us knew that, so we need to think, like, how can we protect vulnerable kids? Number three, back to the like legal liability at Nike. I'm just amazed they s- still just bend over to defend Alberto, but this will get resolved this year, one way or the other, at least with WADA. 
Okay, let's move on. I think all of our listeners have heard us talk about Salazar for probably too many hours at this point. But plenty of other stuff, guys, to talk about. I mean, in the news, we have Boston Marathon finally has a date, October 11th. I mean, I said a few weeks ago I wasn't sure it's going to happen. I'm still not certain. If you read that press release, it's very sort of like, if we can get it cleared, if Massachusetts reopening plan allows for road races in the fall, this is the date we'd like to have it. But I do think, one, it's good that we have a date for it. But it also confirms what we knew was going to be the case is we're going to have the most crowded full marathon season in history. And this is actually, you know, but we have, let's just go through it here. We've got the Olympic marathons on August 7th and 8th. We've got Berlin 26th of September and then October. London on October 3rd, Chicago on October 10th, Boston October 11th. So the two two of the biggest marathons in the world are going to be on back-to-back days. And then you've got Tokyo Marathon October 17th, November 7th is the New York City Marathon. And then you actually have Valencia on December 5th. So, I mean, part of, I'm excited that the Boston has a date, but what do you guys think about this full marathon season, especially it being the day after Chicago? I don't understand why you keep harping on it being the day after Chicago. Who cares? Two, two of the biggest marathons back-to-back? You act like the fact that 50,000 people are running London and 40,000 people will, I mean, are, are running whatever, 30,000 people. We're talking about Chicago and Boston. I mean, what does that do anything, John? I mean, they just played the NFC and AFC championship back-to-back within 40 minutes of each other. Yeah, but the, you're not, if you play in the for an NFC team, you're not eligible to play for an AFC team. Like, a lot of people like to run Boston and Chicago, Robert, and a lot of, you know, a lot of, the fact that they're on the same weekend I can't be in Chicago and Boston at the same time. We're going to have to pick and choose which race to cover. So, look, I don't think it's a nothing burger. I think it will be fine. We've seen this, like, sort of thing before. But, like, last year, no one remembers anything that happened in the Tokyo Marathon because it was the day, it was the same day as the Olympic Marathon trials in Atlanta. We were all out at the bars. You know, should, should I even admit that? We were out having some beers when the Tokyo Marathon was about to start that night. I mean, like, Having it on the same day, inevitably, your coverage is going to get diluted. So I guess in the Olympics, when they have like all 40 or the world championships, when they have, you know, 35 Olympic final world championship finals, they should have one 35 weeks of the year. His point is you could space them out. The world marathon majors are part of a series and having one race the day after another, no series would propose it that way. I think they should have spaced it out more. But let's knock on wood. Let's just hope we have a Boston Marathon, a London Marathon, a Chicago Marathon. I think John was just advocating that Let's Run not cover Chicago this year. Blasphemy right there. Blasphemy. Other big news out this week. Tokyo Olympics essentially isn't going to be held. The good news is the Japanese government is insisting it will be held. So what happened was last Thursday, a report came out in the Times of London that said – the Japanese government had privately concluded the games could not be held. That was like the lead line. But it had a quote from one person who said, you know, I don't think it's possible. That was the only thing officially on the record from an anonymous source. The next day the government comes out and it's like, this is false. They're very adamant. This is false. We're having the games. So it just makes it think kind of how perilous this is going to be. And we, there's, I think from talking to a couple, well, one person in particular close to the Olympic movement, no decisions are going to be made now. Maybe the end of March we'll have a decision made. But I want to have an Olympics. I think athletes need to have a, advocate for the Olympics. I wrote an editorial saying we need to have the Olympics. 
And then the other thing that came out was like I was discussing, could you have the Olympics somewhere else? Or could you have, you know, track and field in Tokyo, gymnastics in Doha, sort of a world virtual Olympics and people like that's a non-starter. The state of Florida came out, maybe a little political posturing, but they were like, look, we could host the Olympics. And that was one thing I said, like Disney can host 30,000 hotel rooms. Florida's open for business. Could you shift the Olympics somewhere else? And people were like, oh, that's not an Olympics. But big picture, track and field, world athletics, you need to have a plan B in case the Olympics get pulled. There needs to be a world championship this year. So that has to be in case in case the Olympics get pulled because there has to be track is a sport has to go on. If the global Olympics is too much, every other sport in the world is going on individually. Track figured out. That's my takeaway. Okay. There's a lot there. And oh, can we have a new segment? We Joe's rant. First of all, the, the times of London, John, isn't that the times they call it? Isn't this like the most prestigious paper in, in, in all, of, all, all of London? I, I thought that there, when that story came out, said that the Olympics was going to be canceled. Admittedly, I didn't want to hear that, but I thought this was just terrible journalism. I'm like, okay, they've got, they, they write it saying it's been decided, but then they quote the person saying, I think, okay, that means it hasn't been decided. So, and they find one person who's got an agenda. I just didn't like that. So, you've got an eye for journalism there, Robert. I agree. I thought the Times, I, I mean, I, there are some great journalists who write for the Times, Matt Lawton, you know, great journalist there, but. This story, I agree. I read it. It's one anonymous source on the record. And he say he uses the phrase, I think you, you nailed it right there, Robert. I think it's questionable. And you see so many stories where they try to get someone to say something and then they, they tip, write an article on it. It reminds me of stories. I, I think all any story that when people rely on Twitter, like tw- Twitter reacts, those should be disallowed. Any story where they just find one person saying something. We, we have a huge world, so you can find one person saying anything. But, you know, let's take a step back here. You know, there's also an editorial I read last week with someone saying that if we have a half-baked Olympics, we shouldn't have one at all. I disagree. Let me tell you why I think the Olympics should continue. One, it's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for these athletes. Maybe twice. Maybe some of them go to two Olympics. But most of them don't have very many opportunities. That We can't forget that. So I'm not saying people should die and we should risk people's life. But to me, that's important. Number two, you know, let's be honest. Japan spent a lot of money, and I think the risk is worth it. Professor Kachimori Miyato of Kansai University has estimated that if the Olympics are canceled, they will lose $45 billion. Now, he's got a couple other scenarios. If they're held um, with no spectators, I think they would lose half that. 25 billion and if they have it with like 50 percent spectators they lose like a quarter of that so there's definitely a financial reason to have this and you know but to me oh excuse me 45 billion canceled yeah and if they have no spectators it's it's 25 billion and if they have 50 percent capacity it's 13 billion so i don't know i I just i think they can hold it safely why in seven months we're, we're, we're vaccinating a million people a day. Like, why couldn't we have all the athletes vaccinated? If the Japanese are worried about it, guys, isn't it pretty easy for them to know who might have COVID? Like, you know who's an Olympian. You know who does not look Japanese. So all the foreigners, you can stay away from them, local people. Okay, Robert, you're making this sound easier than it is, though. You can't just ship 
10,000 athletes and then what another 5,000 coaches, media broadcasters, all this stuff out there. And then just say, yeah, we'll just contain all these 15,000 people from the general population of Japan. This is not easy to do. Like this would be the largest you've seen bubbles in the NBA and other stuff. This would be by far the largest bubble they've attempted. I just don't think it's as easy as you're making it seem. Oh, oh, I don't even want to do a bubble. I want spectators there. I, I agree. Like the reason why Japan is very paranoid about this is think about this. In the U.S., we're averaging about 150,000 new COVID cases a day, roughly. It was a little higher. It was 170-something yesterday. Every two days in the U.S., we're equaling the total number of cases that have ever been reported in all of Japan. They're only at like 300,000 cases. So that's pretty amazing. But I was thinking about it, John. You said how many people are going to go. I think there's about 15,000 athletes. If you add in coaches, you add in media, it could be 100,000 people, even if you're not even counting spectators. You know, let's just say, I'm going to say, let's say a hundred thousand people show up over there, but how many people of those are actually going to have COVID? I mean, in the U S how many people have COVID right now? I said 150,000 a day, but that means over the last 10 days that are, that are contagious, it's 1.5 million, but let's say half of them aren't tested. So it's double it. Say it's 3 million. One in a hundred people in the U S have gotten COVID in the last 10 days maximum. So one out of a hundred, that would be maximum. Could possibly the most you could have is one thousand people with COVID going over to Japan, but you're going to test everybody, so you're probably going to have one in a thousand. I mean, you're going to have like less than a hundred people maximum showing up in that country with COVID. So I just don't think it's something they should be worried about. I mean, how many people had COVID in the United States in December? It was less, well, well, less than a thousand. I'm assuming. Look how that went. I don't. I just don't think it's. It's not. If you're going to say, oh, we can do it safely, like you, you don't know that. You just can't make those promises. It's about trade-offs, and I think they're going to have the games. I think they're going to decide to have the games. But, we'll, you know, at the end of the disease day, if various forms of COVID are raging through the country in March, world in March, they may not decide to have it. And then we'll have to come up with plan B, what to do for track and field this year. But Florida and others have shown, like, there will be major sport. There are major sporting events. The Super Bowl is being held next weekend. Pretty much every major sporting event in the world is being held now, albeit often without fans. So – I'm confident there will be some global track event in 2021. I don't know. If the Olympics are canceled, I don't have faith in world athletics to stage a world championships where you would still need, you know, several hundreds, hundreds, maybe, you know, probably not a thousand, but a lot of athletes, media coaches all coming to one place. I don't think they'd do that and put it together with the host city. That's expensive to put on to bid those, to put through those things. I, I don't have confidence that that meet would exist. And then maybe maybe have a super diamond league final or something like that. There's going to be big track events in 2021. No question. We just it's the diamond league final. Just we don't need to make it super like super wild card weekend or anything. We just have the diamond league final. And that's if the, the Olympics are canceled, there's not going to be a world championships. Well, then don't don't even act like that's even a possibility. Okay, why not? Because these things. I mean, when was Eugene awarded the world championships? Like 2014 or 2015 for a meet that wasn't going to take place for seven years. Now eight. It takes a long time to assemble a local organizing committee to get bids for it, to get a venue, to get everything set up. Who's going to fund it? It's just. I I think it's unrealistic to expect all that to come together in about three three months. I think it's good though that Florida did offer to do it because I think it's going to put pressure on the Japanese. One last thing. I want to go back to Boston for a second. One thing that's interesting to me is the weather. The weather in October is normally about five degrees high, higher than, than April. You guys know I'm obsessed with, with, with weather. But I, having lived in the Northeast for the last tw- 20 years, having coached in the Northeast, the thing that I, that 
I always used to say is I wish track was in the fall. The weather is much more predictable in the fall in the Northeast than it is in the spring. You don't have as much swings. You're not going to have it's, – it's almost impossible. There's almost zero chance that it's going to be snowing or that it's going to be 90 degrees, which has happened before in the April Boston Marathon. So I think it's more likely to be, you know, mid-50s or 60-degree weather. All right, shall we talk about some actual track and field results or running results from over the weekend? I feel like maybe, you know, we haven't gotten a uh, world record or near world record. Which one do you want to go with? Go to the near world record, near world record. Yeah, we did this week's podcast backwards. We passed everyone off Alberto Salazar and like COVID talk. We didn't really mention COVID that much directly, but. So VIP members, members of the supporters club, you've already heard us talk about this near world record. In case you don't know what we're talking about, Jim Walmsley, the guy that was on the podcast last week, he goes for the 100K world record. He's ahead of pace until the final 5K. He misses it by 12 seconds. We recorded an emergency podcast. We we weren't even planning on doing this, but we were watching it, and we were screaming at the screen. We thought he was going to get it, and then he didn't get it. And So if you want to listen to instant analysis and be a cool person, join the Let's Run.com supporters club. Go to Let'sRun.com slash subscribe. Come on, people. I know how many people listen to this podcast, and I know how many people subscribe to the Subscribers Club. We really could use your support. Support independent journalism. Do it now. Stop making excuses. But, John, I don't know. I mean, it's been almost – it's been, what, five days since that race, and I'm still – oh, God. I don't know how Jim's feeling. I mean, he, he said he was proud of the effort, but 12 seconds is so close. Well, he's got another ultra coming up in, I think, less than three weeks now. I think, what is it, Hard Rock that he's running? To He needs to qualify for Western States in case Comrades is canceled, and he ends up doing Western States, which is kind of just a ridiculous arrangement. I mean, Jim's the defending champion at Western States. He owns the course record, and they're going to make him re-qualify by running a, a you know 100K trail race or something a few weeks after he almost misses the world record here. But no, I thought it was a great event uh hoka put a lot of money into this thing and i don't know they they have what fourteen thousand, maybe fifteen thousand viewers in this in the peak stream and i I was into it i'm not usually into hoka uh, sorry no not usually into twenty thousand twenty thousand okay that's the actual number i'm not usually into ultra marathoning but this race the final hour and a half captivated me because i realized how i had an appreciation after talking to Jim on the podcast last week for how tough this record is. And then I went down this rabbit hole of, you know, why the current world record is wind dated and that whole, that thing. And I just realized this is going to be a really tough record if Jim gets it and to see how much he cared about it and how close he was. It was thrilling. I was glued to my TV for the final hour of this attempt. And also the fact that he was doing it while bleeding from his shoulder after clipping this, loose bolt on a fence like on the way around i mean that just added an element of epicness for lack of a better word uh that made the attempt more intriguing to me john i'm a little bit confused you just a week or two ago said you could never watch an academic because two days of running would bore the heck out of you but for some reason running six hours six hours was just mesmerizing for you well i didn't say i watched the entire six hours did i like this this is the equivalent of an academic where you're two stages to go and you have two guys neck and neck uh, I know he wasn't running neck and neck somewhere. He was going after a record, which is the whole point of the thing. So maybe this, maybe I should revise my take on Ekadens, but I think the bigger take is if you have a very long race, 
it can still be very exciting at the end if it's close to a record or if it's two teams, you know, battling it out. Okay, having had a few days to think about this, I mean, it was this was just like, I don't know. It was a pretty epic run. Like somehow you get hooked in. You're like, he's going to make it. Then you're like, there's not much room for error. Minute and a half. Like everything we know about marathoning sort of applies. And then it sort of came down. Like he ran his second to last 5K too slow. If he ran at the last 5K essentially in about 19 minutes, he wasn't going to make it. And then there was some debate. The timing site had a different time than the, the clock on the thing. There's all these inside detail things. And then the guy in the car, I think Eric Sinsman, is that his name? He's yelling at him like, Jim, you can keep going this pace. Wish I could find that clip. That's what people are saying in the forums. He needed to pick it up. But I think Jim knew that. I don't think it really would have made a difference. Like once you fade in a marathon, it's two over. He has 12 seconds to make up. That's nothing over 100K. Jim had an early bathroom bake. Take that out against the record. But like we were sort of like rehashing, oh, if he'd known the split, all this other stuff. I don't think it would have made a difference. It was just one of those things. He missed it by 10, 12 seconds. Sucks. Yeah, I think we need to put into context exactly what the time and you know distance was. This was a 100K world record attempt. The world record is 609.14 by Naokazami of Japan. Jim ran 609.26. So he averaged 556.73 per mile for over 62 miles. He needed to average 556.54. So just grueling and that long straightaway at the end as well it was the most deceptively long straightaway i think i've ever seen in a race i thought when he turned the corner i was like he's got it easily he's going to break this thing by 10 seconds and it was like the clip from monty python where the guy's charging the castle and he never gets any closer it was crazy yeah it ended up being great drama john and you said you were into it but i'll be honest if there wasn't a world record attempt and he was way off. I would have turned that thing off immediately. Like I didn't care about second place, third place, fourth place. I didn't care about the women's winner. None of that was interesting to me. Just the world record. So it's kind of like you know the thing we have these in the future. Well, you got to make sure that you're going to have a world record attempt. Otherwise, I'm not going to find it that compelling. That's kind of one of the interesting things about that. But to me, I was a little bit disappointed in the splits as a viewing experience. I mean, I turned it on with 10 K to go. I'm like, is he going to get the record? He just ran over 19 minutes for that 5 K segment. He needs to run 38 minutes for the final 10 K. I'm like, no, he's not going to get it. He's already slowed down. And I thought it was crazy that I could get on an Excel spreadsheet and and in two minutes, figure out what was going to happen way better than the announcers. I love Tony Revis. Again, this is my weekly segment where I complain about the announcing, but um, you know, here we go again. This comes up again in the Paul Doyle segment. Robert loves to criticize the announcing. Robert, there was some room of error. You could know he's slowing down and has to pick it up, but like, I guess we could have a laser car in front. I mean, some of these things, right? The laser pacing is going to like ruin any sort of like someone's coming down the final stretch, and when they miss a world record by like one second in a five k, we're going to know every single time because the laser pacer is going to be ahead of them. I mean, like. There's something to be said about having a little drama, not knowing the exact split. Like, yeah, they shouldn't know the split, but like there was a 5K split, Robert. You still wouldn't have known what happened. If he had picked it up a little bit, you and I agree. He's not picking it up the last 5K the way it works, but like we didn't know that 100%. He came close. Well, I agree, but that part is true. But all I'm saying is Tony Ravis was counting down 20 minutes to the world record, 15 minutes to the world record. He should have said potential world record because he didn't get the world record. So, and yes, I talked to Mike McManus at Hoka, who organized a lot of this and helped give Weldon some gear back in the day. 
Mike is great. I thought Mike was on the broadcast. He was the only one sort of suggesting that the world record might not happen. So I thought Mike did a good job. But, you know, Mike said in hindsight, he wishes they had like a mile to go or two mile to go split because that's the way Jim thinks. But at every five kilometer split, the timing site was off. But when he ran over that mat with five kilometers to go, up in the left-hand corner, they had the cumulative split for the world record pace. So he would have realized that he is, but that's probably confusing. He was still like 18 seconds ahead at that point, but he's running too slow. So anyways, cool event. I'm sorry that I always harp on the broadcasting, but if you're going to do this, and they spent multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars just to broadcast that with the drones. I mean, the footage was, was great, but you've got, hello, again, organizers, marathon organizers, race organizers. If you're going to broadcast something, and you're really going to do it like top-notch, A, hire a play-by-play guy or woman. B, you must have a stat person as well. You're going to spend $350,000. You need to have an expert. I mean, Robert, they did hire – they had one of the best play-by-play guys in the business. They had great production. And you're upset just because you weren't there to essentially say, oh, that 5K was tight, slightly too slow. He may not make it. I mean, it came down. He missed by 12 seconds. It was riveting TV like – Get over it. Well, I don't just complain. You'll hear when we talk to Paul Doyle, I have graciously offered to do my own research and send it to his announcer for the next meet on ESPN. That's this week, and that comes up in an interview with Paul Doyle, the head of the guy behind the American Track League. Robert's going to have probably to read the podcast early because he said he'll put in a couple hours of research and send notes to the broadcast crew. So that is good to hear. But let's turn to the American Track League. This was the first of four straight weeks of a new thing called the American Track League. It's professional track and field in America put on by super agent Paul Doyle at Fayetteville. And we t- he's at the end of this podcast. And Paul said that, you know, they're pitched this to ESPN. They're going to have one meet, maybe four meets. They found out last second ESPN's like, go all four meets. So they're scrambling to get this thing on. And in the very first throw of the shot put, Ryan Krauser, huge world record, indoor world record, granted, be only the 10th farthest throw, or 10 people, I think it'd be the 10th farthest outdoors. Is that correct? But anyway, what a way to kick this thing off. And there were, I mean, Paul will admit it, there was a lot of problems with the, the TV production. Like stuff went out, This the production truck couldn't talk to the announcers. But things are only going to get better, and Paul is indicating there may be a couple more world records coming at this thing. Like He's got some big names coming, I think, maybe even this weekend. Yeah, uh, we'll, t- we'll get into that with Paul later. Let's talk about, I mean, the Krause world record, I thought it was awesome. Krauser is, I mean, this guy's a beast. Twenty, He's thrown 2291 outdoors. Remember, last year, he was just throwing 22 meters with regular- regularity. And no one else was even coming close. You know, and Joe Kovacs and Tom Walsh, the, his two rivals, weren't really competing that much. But yeah, I mean, this got me really excited because A, he could break the world record again. Like, look, he threw 22.82 and 22.70, which are the two farthest throws ever indoors. He did that in the same series on Sunday. So essentially, anytime he competes from now on is a world record watch indoors. And we're going to be on world record watch outdoors as well. 23-12 is the world record by Andy Bar- uh, Randy Barnes. But there, there are other good performances as well. I mean, Trayvon Bromel looked great. He won the 60, I think, uh, 6.48 there. And he looked he looked smooth doing that. Andre DeGrasse actually looked – he got a horrible start and he didn't even make it to the final, I think. So I don't know. I'm not really worried. Andre DeGrasse knows how to put it together at the championship meets. But 
that was good to see Bromel running. I mean, remember, he was a world indoor champion at 60 meters, so he's very good. Grant Holloway is in midseason form. He ran 735, tied his American record in the 60 hurdles. And Fred Curley also looked quite good. I think 45.03, I want to say, was the winning time. Don't quote me on that in the men's 400. So a lot of big a lot of big names. I mean, Kenny Harrison was there, Omar McLeod, a couple of, uh, you know, the world record holder and the Olympic champion in the, in the hurdles. So it was, it, was, it was a lot of good competition. Could have been broadcast better, but I'm glad to see these athletes competing. I was shocked at the names they had on such short notice because also – I figured athletes might think they're not may not be in much of an indoor season. If you're a sprinter, why not? You can just go run a hundred in Florida. But they had really big names, but no distance races. I think the longest race was 400 meters. That's going to change this week. There will be 800s and miles coming up in the next four weeks, but nothing longer than that. All right, there was another track meet in the South on the same day, later that night, actually, and. This one took me by surprise. I, I mean, I knew there was going to be a meet in Birmingham, Alabama. Dave Milner was putting this on. It's called the Magic City Elite. What I didn't expect was to hear some D2 guy I've never heard of run 13.37. He broke the D2 record indoors, which had stood for 14 years uh, by Nicodemus Neymadu. And I don't know. I, 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 the, my, I think possibly my favorite thing about this was I saw the result. I'm like, oh, wow, that's really great. And then I saw this clip that David Monty shared it on Twitter of his teammates watching him break the record. And it just got me, I'm like, oh, man, it brought me back to being on a college team and just caring so much about your your team. And they couldn't be there in, in person for it, but they're watching on the stream. They're like, oh, my God, he's going to get it. He's going to get it. And they're just freaking out, start jumping up around. And then they get to the final lap. And they're like, oh, my God, he's going to It was just, it really... Uh, I felt it was very pure, uh, pure joy that they showed on that. So that was a lot of fun to watch. But thirteen thirty-seven for a D two guy. I mean, he was he was a Footlocker finalist. He ran nine oh four in high school. I was kind of surprised he ended up going D two, but he's hasn't hurt his development that much. John's talking about a, a D two guy he's never heard of. Well, the podcast listeners have never heard of him because John didn't mention his name. Christian Noble. Christian Noble. I didn't mention his name. Oh, I'm sorry. Lee Lee oh, University man. in Tennessee. So yeah, he was good in high school. What's interesting to me, John, is his progression. He runs 1430 in 2017. Only 1453 in 2018. He must have been injured in 2019 because I don't see any results. 2020, he runs 1401. And then bam, 1337. So talent doesn't go away. And now he's the Division II record holder. So congrats to him. I'm surprised John could enjoy it. John... I'm pretty much like COVID young people should be allowed to go out and do what they want. I said this summer, like, shouldn't we, wouldn't it be wise for them to get COVID before the winter? And people think some of this shit's probably crazy, but watching the clip, John, like there's like 10 people in this room. Oh yeah. No mask. I hadn't seen anything like that, but that's what happened in college kids. These kids presumably may even be tested. Maybe they've already had COVID like, and COVID isn't much of a threat to young people. Like, my one source of joy, I was watching that clip, and now you have to ruin it because they want social distancing. So thank you for uh, for doing that, raining on my parade. They weren't even masked, and the screaming is going to give large viral particles out, John. That was a super spreader event. I can't believe you and, and Mr. Woke David Monty were approving of that. I agree with Weldon <laughs> on, on that front. Robert Johnson, the, always the voice of reason. Can I t- tell a funny anecdote, though, about that American Track League meet? So – we, we talked on the podcast last week. We confessed to everyone how we weren't going to be watching it live. We were going to be watching the NFC Championship, AFC, NFC Championship game. 
And right when the meet was starting, I got a text from a VIP subscriber. And he said, real track fan checking in as I tune into the ATL meet. You're watching football. My family's at the playground, and I am right here, focused on track and field. And then I got a text a few minutes later saying, it appears Ryan Krauser just crossed the indoor shot put world record. So I thought they were joking. I thought, I thought this VIP subscriber was joking, but wasn't the case. And I turned off the football mate and recapped the shot put for everybody. So journalism, my dedication has no, no limits. Real, real heroes don't wear capes, Robert. No, it's funny though. I, I was watching the football too. And I was like, I was watching, it was awesome. Brady was dealing. Some of his throws were just in that first, that first drive. He had three amazing throws. I'm like, this is prime Tom Brady, even though he's still 43 years old. But then I was like, I couldn't resist. I saw the crowds a thing. And then I saw how fast Holloway ran in the prelims of the 60 hurdles. And I'm like, could he get, maybe get the world record here? So I, I flicked that on and watched his final and, you know, I, I couldn't resist the siren call of track and field. I had a, a I had a couple events on that I watched live, and I rewatched the whole thing in the evening. But yeah, this this weekend there is no NFL games to go up against it. It's uh, going to be on ESPN two, and unfortunately, it is going up against Brighton and Hove Albion and against Tottenham Hotspur. So I think I'm going to have to DVR that, and maybe no one texts me any spoilers or anything about Brighton Spurs because I'm going to be watching this ATL meet from Fayetteville. There's one other thing, football related. I, I think this is tangentially related to track and field that we should have discussed. Do we have to put an asterisk on the Kansas City Chiefs AFC Championship? Because right before the kickoff of Chiefs versus Bills, Tracy Wolfson, the CVS sideline reporter, had a report about what he was, Patrick Mahomes, the star quarterback, will be having wearing in his shoe and they showed it was a carbon plate to combat turf toe. They put it in the base of his shoe, and the Chiefs ended up winning the game. Mahomes was amazing, and now I'm like, do I have to call all of Mahomes' question, accomplishments into question, or do we just dock his rushing, rushing numbers? Because his rushing, it wasn't even that impressive. He was only five yards and five carries, so maybe carbon plates don't work in football. Well, no, this sounds like the first version of the Kipchoge shoes. When they would have – Nike – Sometimes rushes these things. Don't ever get the first version of anything, folks. Like when a new computer comes out, don't get it. Nike rushes the shoe out. Kipchoge's insole comes flopping out and he cost him a record. Five yards of rushing, John? This shoe was obviously hurting him. So. Though I don't know if they count the kneel downs because he's probably was kneeling towards the end of the game. So I don't know if that it's included in the stats. Also, the other thing, somewhat football related. So a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Tom Brady of Michigan. The runner, who was so impressive, 758 as a sophomore for 3K. Now it turns out Michigan has suspended all athletic activities for up to two weeks. Looks like they're going to miss the Big Ten meet. The Big Ten cross country is this weekend. Sorry that this is going to count as your Big Ten cross country preview here. No Tom Brady there. He'll be in the Super Bowl. He won't be at the Big Ten cross this weekend in Indiana. And it seems like Michigan might not even be able to make it to NCAA cross because the number one consideration for the selection committee, remember there's no regionals this year, is going to be conference championship performance. That is the the Big Ten championship was the only cross-country meet on Michigan's schedule. So now they have to A, get back to competing, and B, find a meet or two meets to bolster their resume. I think they're probably not going to make it. The men were seventh last year, and the women has made it 18 straight years, and I think those that streak's over probably. 
Well, that's on them. That's on them. I mean, they're, they're probably John. They're probably only allowed to compete against other Big Ten schools. That's why it's the only meet on their schedule, because that's what they did in football. The Big Ten didn't want anyone competing with any other schools. So, I don't know. I, I posted on the message board. I, I feel bad for them, but this doesn't make a lot of logical sense to me. Like John, you were on a college team. How often does the basketball team interact with the cross country team? So why do they cancel the entire sporting sports on the entire campus? Unless it, unless it was in the training room, you know, the Ravens here in town, one of the strength and conditioning coaches got COVID and he gave it to like a bunch of players. So if a trainer had it, then I could see how they could give it to a bunch of, a bunch of, of teams. But this seems kind of weird to me, but it's because they have the new highly, you know, contagious variant of COVID in Michigan. Guess what? That, that COVID variant is going to be dominant in the United States. So when I saw this, my take is Michigan is not going to be competing in sports the rest of the year. The, the logical conclusion to this is Michigan is done in all sports for the rest of the season because it doesn't, I, I don't understand it. If they're worried about the highly contagious variant of COVID it's in the U S it's going to be all over soon. This to me seemed like, let's follow it through to, to its logical conclusion. Seems a tad fatal fatalistic. No, I guess I shouldn't comment because I don't know. The, but there's no Michigan basketball. Every sport canceled, even though I don't even know which sport tested positive. Like this to me, I don't know. Like I guess you can make that decision, but you better suffer that you're going to suffer the consequences. It's not canceled. They're suspending all sports activities temporarily for up to 14 days. They didn't say how long exactly, but they've already said they've already said on the cross country schedule they're not competing at Big Tens. No, I've heard athletes can't even practice. Right. But what do they think? They think the basketball players aren't going to be getting together and like hanging out with their friends or that the cross country runners aren't going to be getting out and going for runs. So I'm not exactly sure what it, what this accomplishes. I guess you're not having all the basketball players at once together practicing, but for running, people can sort of be in very small pods and do their own thing. So I just think it's painting everything with a very big brush. I, I, I certainly wouldn't have done this and no other school in America has done it yet, but as a college administrator, it's very easier to be safer than sorry. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a liability issue here, but I agree if it's like five guys on the basketball team have this strain, I don't think that's a reason why the cross country team should stop be competing, but we don't know the details there. I think shouldn't speculate any further. It's a little bit too much COVID, COVID talk, but shouldn't we be given the details? I mean, there are medical privacy issues here, right? right? But I feel like... You don't have to say the name. I you feel like say- someone in the athletic staff, that's different, you know, that's interacting with athletes from multiple teams, that's different from just one team. Like, you know, am I going to get COVID because someone was in the weight room and then I'm in the weight room, like, okay. you know, two days later? I, I don't know. What are you hiding? Give us the information. Stop treating us like we, we don't deserve the information. You could say five members of the athletic training staff have it or et cetera, you know, and this would be an interesting coaches. If any Michigan coaches are listening to this podcast, don't be tempted to do anything. Do not email out workouts to runners. Don't do a damn thing. Cause you could get fired for this. They said to stop all activity. So I trust Kevin Sullivan and Mike McGuire will handle this fine. I feel bad for the athletes. I feel bad for the coaches. Like the athletes not going to compete against the yeah, Rock. Been coaches that have been fired for, for giving their athletes summer training plans because technically that's against the rules. So you better you better follow the rules because we saw what ha- you know. Well, anyways. All right. Well, I just I the one good thing is this year doesn't count in cross eligibility. So these athletes hopefully should be able to come back if you had cross eligibility. That's not a good thing to me. That that's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. The NCA. 
it's, it's disgraceful that they're giving everybody an extra year. This is a season that doesn't count. So what you're doing is you're going to be hurting the high school seniors and the high school juniors. I'm sorry. The entire world has suffered from a COVID. They're just, this should be the lost year. You lose your season of eligibility. We can't be granting people an extra year of eligibility. There's a budget crunch. And so now we're going to have extra scholarships. The, the, the high schoolers need to get their scholarships. So to me, that's absurd. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. People should just lose their eligibility. We're going to have, you know, BYU is going to have what? Eighth year seniors now. This is crazy. Yeah, it is. It is going to be a very interesting situation going forward. And there's not as many scholarships available for athletes in the class of 2021. I would like to share our email of the week. I think actually I have two emails of the week. This one is from Max podcast listener. And been, he said he was catching up on the shows last week. And John, the logic that he's, Tell me if you think his logic is good. He's like, listen, I, I listened to the Jeff Burns interview. He said the super shoes are worth between one and a half, two and a half minutes in a marathon, right? You agree with that, John? That's what this person's saying. I agree with that. He says the Hoka Carbon X is not a super shoe because while they have a plate, they don't have the super foam. You agree with that? Um, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what the testing is, but it, it's if it it's not exactly this. I don't know. I, I don't know what the stats say on it. We haven't studied okay. it. That's what Jeff Burns said. He said it wasn't a super shoe and that they're giving up time. So, again, I think I'm going to fund Jeff Burns to privately test at least all these shoes on himself. But that's what he's saying. And he says that Scott Fobble at the Marathon Project ran 209.40 in, a, in an effort that he said he would give himself a B. So he says, quote, it seems to me that the logical conclusion from all of this is that Fobble ran two, ran the equivalent of a 207.40 if he had a super shoes on a bad, not all that good of a day. So if he has a good day, that would be worth at least 40 seconds more. Thus, Scott Fobble can run 206 high and have a good shot at the podium in a major. Right? I actually, this is a genius email. I feel like Robert, this is something Robert would come up with in a column. So credit to Max for emailing it in. But I'm not, I guess the sticking point is I'm not convinced that the Hoka shoe is not a super shoe. And I know that's what Jeff Burns said, but like, I don't know. I've talked to Ben Rosario, who's Scott Hobble's coach. Obviously, he has a vested interest in this, but he says they don't really feel like they're giving up time in that shoe. I think they feel pretty confident in what they have. So, I don't know. Is that just public bluster? I, I think Ben's pretty much a straight shooter. So, I don't know if that is totally true. I do think Scott... You know, if he had been on a good day, if he'd been in the shape he was in in Boston in 2019, yeah, you could probably run 208, maybe, yeah, I don't know about 207, maybe 207. But I, I guess I'm just not totally convinced that the Hoka shoe is, is that much worse than the Vaporfly or the Adidas models. Well, it appears to be an ounce and a half heavier. So Jeff Burns said every, every uh, didn't he say every ounce is a half a percentage point in, in Efficiency, so right there, you're talking about 0.75% efficiency. Anyways, we'll be seeing. I've said that all along. If I'm Scott Fobble, I'm wondering how much faster I'd be running in another brand shoe. Yeah, I mean, Alphine Tulliamuk won the trials in Hoka, so uh, I don't know. I feel like people just ignore that fact. Robert, every athlete seems to be wondering that, like – that's the whole problem with this thing. I I, I just, I don't know. There, there's all these different shoes. There's like, what, the Carbon Rocket, the Rocket X. There's a third one, right? 
Someone mentioned that last time. I didn't even realize there's a third one now. Any combination of the words carbon, rocket, and X, throw them together, and there's some sort of hokushu. And Adidas, same thing. There's like boost. It's like I'm getting confused, but that's the problem with this, what the IWF had with these shoe rules. We don't need to bring it up every week, I don't think. But, but nothing's been done about it. Why isn't World Athletics testing these shoes? Again, shoes, the shoe execs. I, I've put this out there on the podcast. I'm going to put this up on the message board and, and put pin it at the top of the homepage for one entire week. If you have a super shoe that you think can beat Nike, send it to me. Contact me now, Robert at let's run.com Robert at let's run.com. I will send it to my guy that's getting ready to make his marathon debut. I've had no one take me up on this offer. No one has taken me up on this offer. I did contact one shoe rep and they said they would send the shoe to my guy because I, I can't find them online. And, but I said, do you know if your shoes as good as the Nike they didn't directly answer that question. How good is this guy? Or the reminder, Robert? How good is what? How good is your guy? You're saying this guy's making his marathon debut. Why should they send him the shoe? How good is he? Well, he's an American that I think can break 210. Okay. You, you just think he's, I mean, do you have any, has he run, what's he run for times? Why do you think he break 210? John, Robert wants to keep the secret. He's not going to reveal who this is. You, you can cross-identify someone from their time. All right, all right. And speaking of Hoka, one thing that we didn't mention when we were talking about Jim Walmsley was his time was the second fastest for 100K. And prior to this race, he had sent a link that we put in last week's podcast, email me, and the link linked to a story on the greatest 100 kilometers. And that was Don Ritchie's 61020 world record on the track. And Jim did beat that one. So Jim's was the fastest non-wind-aided 100 kilometers ever. But I didn't even realize there's could put the whole damn thing on a track. Personally, I kind of like the roads better. But I don't know if that's a nice consolation prize for Jim. But I thought it was sort of interesting that he had said, look, kind of implied, like, this is the greatest 100-kilometer race ever. And he did beat that time. So moral victory, moral victory. Okay. Bef- one last thing before we get to Paul Doyle. I wanted to bring this up. Some breaking news from earlier this week. I think we may need to institute a countdown timer on the homepage to the RAK half marathon because this is going to be one of the... I mean, if there's no Olympics, this could be the best race of the year. This this thing's absurd. If you look at the entries, Jeffrey Camwaror will be running it. He will be taking on Jacob Kiplimo and Kibawat Candier. Kibawat Candier, who took his world record in the half marathon... They're in there, Alexander Motiso. So that's another sub 58 guy. You've got Mosinek Garibu's in there, Ben Kuroki, Jamal Yuma, Shura Katata, the London champion. All these guys are going to be running. And remember, Camaro hasn't run since February 2020, was his last race. He got clipped by a motorcycle. He's out for a training run. He fractured his tibia. I think he's supposed to be returning to the Kenyan Police Cross Country Championships this weekend, but this will be his first big race uh, in a year. And then on the women's side, they announced oh, Helen O'Beary is going to be making her debut in the half marathon. That's two-time world champion at the 5,000 meters. Alongside Aubel Yashana, who's the world record. Yalimzef Yahualor, who's number two all-time, 64-46. And Bridget Cosguy, the world record holder in the marathon. I mean, these fa- fields, I'm running out of adjectives to describe them. The race is until February 19th. But the fact that Cameron is coming back to maybe break, get his record back from these guys... That has to be pumped beyond all belief. I mean, this is going to be a fantastic race. None of you guys seem all that excited to see Jeffrey Camaro, one of the most electrifying runners in the world, to be making his grand return. 
John, it, it is. But when is the race? February 19th. What's today's date? January 27th. Just, you know. All right. So maybe a little premature for the countdown timer, but it will be a great race when it happens uh, about three weeks from now. All right. Is that it, gang? Anything else before we get to our uh, interview with Paul Doyle? Yeah, I don't think Weldon did a perfect, a great job on the sponsor plug earlier. Guys, free LMNT sample pack. Go to drinklmnt.com slash let's run. Drinklmnt.com slash let's run. They're so confident in the product, they're going to ship you a free sample pack. All you got to do is pay for the shipping. It's only five bucks. I'm not sure if we made that clear. Just go there now. Thank you. All right, well, now very pleased to be joined on the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast by Paul Doyle, super agent Paul Doyle. I think he qualifies. He represents clients like Ryan Krauser, Christian Taylor, Andre DeGrasse, Clayton Murphy, Ashton Eaton, a bunch of people that you've heard of. He's also putting on, he's the man behind the American Track League, which had its first meet on Sunday. We've got more meets next three Sundays in Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, one of the only pro track meets in the U.S. this year. Paul, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I guess the you know reason we had you on is to talk about the American Track League. And just I'm curious, like how and why did you decide to put on this series? Um, well, the why is uh, the, the easy answer, I guess. We need it. You know, our, you know, I I have all these track and field athletes that are trying to be professional, and uh, doesn't make sense to do be a professional track athlete if you don't have competitions. We have all these tough conversations and tough negotiations with shoe contracts, asking them to pay our athletes a lot of money. And why would they pay our athletes a lot of money if they're not getting exposure for the brand? The only way to, or the best way to do that rather is to do it through competition. So our sport needs this, our athletes need it, our athletes want it, the fans want it. We had to do it. The question I have is, Paul, why, why do you have to do it? Where's USATF, you know, seems like since the pandemic starts, they've done absolutely nothing. Are you getting support from USATF? Why does Agent Paul Doyle have to do this and not USATF? Um, I mean, it's a great question. You know, I know the, the one thing I will say is that we have a lot easier of a time to do it, less restrictions than they do necessarily. Um, I have motivation to do it because I work directly with the athletes. I, you know, to this point, USATF... Um, has not supported, but we are having conversations as, you know, as soon as we hang up the phone here, we're going to have conversations, but it looks like they are going to come in and support. Um, Based on what they saw this first meet, I think they saw that the athletes want this. The athletes are itching to compete and they're competing really well when they get the opportunity. So, um, you know, I think they, they realize, hey, this can be something that can be really good for the sport. So let's step up and help it out. Yeah, I mean, the, the performances at the first meet were outstanding. You had Ryan Krauser in his very first throw of 2021. He smashes the world indoor record in the shot put. You've got Grant Holloway tying the American record in the 60-meter hurdles. Trayvon Bromel looked fantastic in the 60. Fred Curley looked great in the 400. I mean, you've got some of the biggest stars in the sport in the U.S., a bunch of Olympic champions running here. So I think yeah. it's pretty incredible, the fields you guys got. Like, how... how how did you get all these athletes? Because obviously some of them you represent, but many of them, you know, Bromel, Holloway, McLeod, Kenny Harrison, you don't. Yeah, no, exactly. And and I've been humbled to see how much support these guys are given this, this series of meets. Um, 
and it just shows how much they want it and how much they need it. And, and you know, we're not, we don't have budgets, <laughs> you know, we, we had a, a budget in mind, but we didn't hit those numbers. Um, so the athletes to them, it's not, it's not about the money. It's about the exposure and the, the opportunity to compete and do what they love to do. And, uh, there's no fun training if you don't get to compete. <laughs> so, uh, that's why I think we've got this incredible support from the athletes and it's hats off to them for really making this successful. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to, I'm curious because I was looking on Twitter about some of the athletes feedback for the meet and like Sandy Morris, who was the color commentator for the first meet on Sunday, she said the budget essentially is non-existent for this meet. And I'm curious, like, what is the model for funding this? Like how much of this is coming out of your pocket? Do you have any sponsor support? Like how does this all work financially? So we, uh, the, the model is this, that uh, ESPN gives us the airtime and we pay for production, putting on the meat and all that. And in return, they trade us out with uh, commercial inventory. So we actually have commercials on ESPN that we can provide to sponsors and that sort of thing. And that's sort of the way that I felt it made the most sense. You know, a lot of times the meat already has a sponsor and they'll approach um, USATF to handle the production of the of the meat and put it on NBC Sports and and whatnot and that's great when you have the sponsors in advance. We didn't have sponsors in advance and getting sponsorship right now is very difficult. So the way that we are able to entice the sponsors is by you know not only having them in the program but uh, providing them with commercial inventory as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but that it's a tough sell. Unfortunately, we, you know we were. Pitching this idea to ESPN uh, in the fall, um, late fall, I would even say, and you know they they have a lot of internal processes they have to go through to get these things approved and all that. And it, it time was traveling on, and we were getting to the point where we're like, hey, this isn't really going to work out. It doesn't seem we're getting the commitment, and it sort of decided internally, let's just do one meet and put on one meet. And then as soon as we decided to do one meet. We got the call from ESPN. Okay, we've approved all four meets. I'm like, well, shoot, looks like we're going back to four meets then. Um, and uh, University of Arkansas and the athletic director there have been unbelievable at, uh, you know, um, unbelievably accommodating. Where most universities are petrified to have a you know person that's not with the university on their campus, the university has just opened it up to us to allow us to put these events on. So they've, they've been great. Um, once we decided to do the four and, and Arkansas came on board to support all four meets, it's been, it's been great. Now the, the difficulty was getting the sponsorship and selling those, that commercial inventory and whatnot and because of the timing of it. They, we got the commit from, from ESPN right before the holidays and everything shuts down for the holidays. And then coming out of the holidays, we're just that much closer. You know, we start pitching to companies and, they say, when is this? And we say, oh, it's in two and a half weeks. And they're like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, it's just the, the timing is, is so short, but, um, this week, I, almost immediately after the meet, we started getting calls from different brands that are now wanting to support. So I feel like every, every meet is just going to get better and better. Um, and the athletes seem to still want to be supporting it. I think, uh, a lot of the athletes saw, the type of caliber of athlete and the caliber of performances that were happening this first week and said, Hey, I want a part of that. Let me in, <laughs> you know? So mm-hmm. yeah, a lot, a lot of the athletes uh, will be announcing probably tomorrow, some big, big superstar athletes that are coming to week number two. Um, 
So we're, we're hoping to double the number of world records um, next week. <laughs> all right. All right. So it's, a real, it's a real possibility as well. So. Well, I, I'm curious though, like say, like, I mean, who, who's sort of assuming the risk? Like if this thing doesn't come out profitable or breaks, like, is this on you? Like, would you have to eat the cost and yeah, for that? Yeah. It's a, and it's a risk I'm willing to take just to, you know, the sport has been really good to me through the years and I've developed a good business and, you know, had a, a good lifestyle as a result of this sport. And, you know, if I have to take a, a risk and take a chance and take a loss, I'm going to do it because it's going to keep the sport going. Well, in the, you know, in the past you did the American track league outdoors, but the, the thing that's interesting to me is, I mean, there's been other people. It's not like you're the first person to put on a track meet. Right. Um, I mean, a few years ago, we had the track town summer series with a multimillionaire backing it. And that only lasted one year. So how have you been able to, I mean, I guess, do you get something on the back end from the athletes? Like, <laughs> rich, richer people than you have tried this who love track. So why are you still in it and they're not? Uh, I guess my true passion for it, I, I suppose. And I mean, to be honest, money's never been that important to me. <laughs> so it's, uh, I know it's odd for an agent to say that, but that's the truth. And, you know, I, I, I probably uh, would be retiring a lot earlier than, than I would be now if I hadn't done the American track league. Uh, I hope that's not the case in the long run, but I've, you know, I've made this uh, personal investment of probably close to half of my net worth to get this thing off the ground. And uh, you know, we consider it a, a success if we only lose in the five figures on a meet. <laughs> so um, no, I, I mean, I, I hate to say that I do believe in this concept that it can be a very viable um, self-fulfilling, you know, entity. Like, I think this can be profitable and it's just the sport's not in that position right now, you know, without sponsorship dollars coming in, um, you know, it's, it's making things tough, but I truly believe that this concept of the American track league and the big vision that I have is the team concept and all that, um, down the road. I think there is substance to that. And I do believe that it can work. And, in my opinion, these are steps in that direction. So it's an investment towards that. So when you say team concept, do you, are you talking like what they did in the track town summer series? Because I, I look, I want to see track and field succeed in this con- country, but I'm not totally sold on the team concept as being the reason why it would succeed or why it would become more popular. So I guess sell pitch me on why that is the way to go. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people aren't sold on it. And, and yeah, so that the idea that we had that track town summer series took and ran with was the team concept. But, you know, I, the reason we hadn't done the team concept yet was because it was, it's, it's a slow roll to that. <laughs> you know, you can't just all of a sudden pop out and Hey, we're having a team concept. I think you need to develop a series of meets first. And then once you have the meets, then you start to apply the team concept to it down the road. You, you say, okay, if we're having a meet in Houston, Let's uh, let's develop a Houston track club that's associated with the American Track League. And then eventually that can turn into a team concept. Oh, this guy's actually running for the Houston Track League team, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And you have to I mean, it's probably honestly a, a decade or, or close to a decade getting to that level. You can't just jump into a team concept when people don't have a team to support yet. Like, oh, I am from Houston. I'm not going to automatically support the Houston team unless it's been brought up through the years. And I understand that it's got grassroots in there first and develop into that. 
do you think it's that's confusing at all given the structure of the sport that we have right now because you've got all these training groups which are kind of teams and like in the distance running community like the bowman track club that's a team and sure. pete julian's group that you know they will be a team i guess officially at some point like do you think that you can have this american track league concept while also having these training groups which are kind of de facto teams already yeah i mean i, I believe these those teams can evolve into those so maybe bowman track club becomes the the roots of the portland team Mm-hmm. You know, Tumbleweed Track Club, which is ran a riders group down in Jacksonville, um, becomes the root of the the Jacksonville team, that sort of thing. So I think it can evolve to that for sure. It's going to take time. And I don't think you need to drop the the training group concept completely. To me, Paul, the, 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 I mean, the, the one the problem with all this is. You know, and, and it gets back to, I mean, I can remember when uh, the soccer guy took over for USATF. He's like, oh, I'm going to have the athletes do this. And I'm like, no, you're not going to have the athletes do anything because you don't control their salaries. The ones that control their salaries is, is the shoe companies. To me, the natural for the teams would be to have a Nike team, an Adidas team, a Hoka team, Puma team. I mean, there's a lot of shoe companies that are in you know, New Balance, et cetera. Why not have those be the teams? I mean, they're the ones already paying the athletes' salaries. They're the ones that could force the athletes to do this. Why not have the teams be based on their sponsor, their main sponsor, and not geographic? Well, I think people are passionate about where they're from more so than what brand people are wearing. I think that's if we want to get, you know, I'm a huge New England Patriots fan because I'm originally from Boston, right? I'm not, I'm not going to support um, a team that's tied to a sponsor. You know, like in european football they all have a sponsor on their shirt and they don't actually have their team name on the sport they have a sponsor so you, you get the association with it but i still think it needs to be a city that supports it and, and i had discussions with the uh, organizers of the zagreb meet in croatia because i had this concept uh years ago to to apply it to a lot of the world challenge level meets in europe and they said because they completely fund that meet through government money just about at least 80% of the funding for that meet comes from government money. And I asked them, I said, why do you guys put this money to the Zagreb meeting? And they said, well, because we want people to feel proud about the city they live in. If we bring a world class, class event to the city, they feel proud about it. I said, okay, wouldn't they feel even more proud if they had a, a whole athletics team that traveled to different cities and competed as well? And then they also have their home meet. And they said, yeah, that would be amazing. You know, I think that's, so this, this concept, although it's not effectively been applied to track and field, I don't think it's an impossibility. I wanted to ask briefly about the broadcast on Sunday because that that drew a lot of criticism from some people, Noah Lyles, Michael Johnson on Twitter. And, you know, I watched the whole thing. I thought there were obviously a couple issues with the audio and, you know, it wasn't as smooth as your typical Diamond League pro- broadcast. But you sort of, I saw your response to Michael jo- Johnson and was essentially yeah. saying, you know, it's tough to put on when you don't have a lot of money. Like, I guess, what are your thoughts on how the broadcast went and how can it be improved for the next three weeks? Well, I'll be honest, no one's going to be more critical of it than myself, to be honest. Um, you know, and I understand where Michael was coming from and all that, but uh, at the same point, he's got to understand, you know, where we, where we are. We have zero funding. We actually had not a single dollar of sponsorship for this first meet. Um so to, to put on an event like that, obviously we'd love to have the best production team in the world and, and all that, but we, we basically got what we could afford and the guys we brought did a, a heck of a job under the circumstances, but we got really unlucky with a lot of things too, you know, right from the start, 
we were supposed to start with commercial and we didn't. So we were live three, three and a half minutes earlier than we thought we were going to be. And then communications broke down. The headsets broke between the broadcast booth and the production booth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we were, we were behind the eight ball right from the very start. Everything worked perfectly in the tests that we did. And then once we went live, it, it was a disaster. Um, so I'm, I'm well aware that the uh, production was not up to standard, um, but it will be better moving forward. No question about it. You know, as we gain experience and we get support, we're hopeful now that, um, the, you know, that USATF has seen and recognized like what the possibility is for this thing and that they step up and help us a little bit on the production side. And we get uh, more sponsors coming on board as we we've started to get already now. So once that first meet went, we've got sponsors coming in for the third meet and the fourth meet and other brands more interested. Uh, we now have some some you know, uh, content that we grabbed in this first one that we can help promote. So I think it's just going to grow from here and more people are going to support it. And I think it'll get better and better every week. I promise Weldon, I try to be constructive instead of, it's easy to be a critic. Weldon's like, it's, every broadcast that goes on TV, I, I, I criticize. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think part of that is, yes, I'm a little bit arrogant. I, I've done a few broadcasts for ESPN Plus, maybe Ivy League broadcasts. And I always say, I know that I could do a better job broadcasting that than they did. To be honest, Paul, I was mainly watching the NFL this weekend, so I didn't see that much. But yeah. the, the part that I did see was the one that we, we put up on the website, the, the American record. I mean, how how does – I don't understand how the play-by-play man, Lewis Johnson, the color lady, Sandy Morris, the, the sideline reporter, none of them. Even – I assume there's a stadium announcer. There's four people there. No one realizes this is an American record. I mean, that to me is very basic. Like, did they not have any research notes? Like – when I do the broadcast, you're right, it does take money because I spend an entire week, literally 40 hours, preparing f- for it. Now, this is not that many events, so it, it wouldn't take that long. But you've got to be doing at least a day's worth of prep. You know, I know Sandy Morris isn't a professional broadcaster, but does she have any notes? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, what it comes down to essentially is manpower, <laughs> you know. Like I said, with no money to pay anybody, we have we would love to hire you, Robert, to – give us a, uh, you know, spend your 40 hours putting together notes on each athlete and having the, having the data in front of you. And that's one thing we, we recognize we have to do moving forward um, as well. But at the same time, it's, uh, it's, we don't have the, the manpower. This meet was essentially put on by three main organizers, you know, myself and Jeff Hartwig and Brian Fetzer were, and, and Robbie Hughes actually. So four of us were really running this whole entire thing from start to finish. And we're doing things like from, you know, when I was planning to do those notes for Lewis and and Sandy, uh, instead I had to do bibs because the bibs came back from the printer and the names were too small. (laughs) So we had to recut out bibs and things like that. And it's just, you know, I slept probably three and a half hours a night for the entire week coming into this meet. And, um, you know, if we had more money, I'd love to have, pay somebody like Kevin Saylor or someone like that to step up and handle all that stuff. You know, the, the problem is without money, it's tough to get things done. And it's, it's easy. Like you say, it's easy to be critical because we fell short, no question. But the way we don't fall short is by having funding. You know, it's like you say, it's not rock science. We can do it. I know, but 
isn't that, man, I don't want to criticize Lewis because I don't really know him, but isn't that his job? If he's doing the meet, should he be doing some notes himself? Like, I, I don't get that. I mean, the guy that I do play-by-play with, Bill Spaulding, he's done some NBC stuff. He's, he's amazing. And I've asked him sort of privately. I said, hey, when you do these other meets, because he's got more notes than I do. I mean, I'll have 60 pages of notes. He'll have 100 pages of notes. I say, when you do these other meets, are the other, are the other play-by-play people stealing your meet notes or are they doing their own notes? He's like, well, it's half and half. But I, I promised Weldon that I would volunteer to send you some notes for this next meet. So if you give me the, if you give me the start list yeah. ahead of time, I will send over a couple hours worth of research just to, <laughs> just to get to someone. And as, if my wife would let me travel there for COVID, I'd, I would volunteer to broadcast. I don't know anything about the sprints. I would do the distance meet, but I don't think my wife's going to let me fly out to Arkansas. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, that that's exactly what we need. We need people like you that are willing to step up and help us out, you know, and yes, be, be constructively critical, of course, like we need that. But, uh, you know, I think we're, we're well aware of where we fell short and uh, where we need to improve. And yeah, but honestly, people stepping up and helping like you're like you're saying you will, we would we would love that. We'd welcome that. And I've got to go pretty soon. I think John can keep asking you a few questions. I have a few questions just about the agent game in, in general, sure. um, and, and I'm fascinated by it. I mean, because you guys are all talking to the same people at the Nikes and the New Balances. It's the same person that's in charge of the sponsorship money. So if, if I'm – let's go back in time. I graduated college 25 years ago. Let's, let's say my dreams had become reality and I was the number one distance recruit in the country. I'm, you know, Let's say I'm the, I'm the equivalent of Clayton Murphy. What is your pitch to me? Why should I hire Paul Doyle? I mean, I've, I've always wondered – and it's not necessarily – you know you specifically, but what is an agent's pitch to the athletes? Like, am I going to get more money by going to you? Is it a trust factor? How does that work that a certain athlete goes with a certain agent? I mean, I think it's all of that. Yeah. I'm going to get athletes the most money possible. (laughs) You know, I mean, every agent I'm sure has their own pitch. Um, And that is one of my pitches. You know, I've remained, I I think the most neutral uh, agent in the world, as far as not having, sort of a a partnership with certain shoe brands. And when you're that way, you can, you can maximize an athlete's earnings because they, you know, Nike knows that that if I sign an athlete, that they're not going to just get them signed automatically. I'm going to bring them to Puma and to Adidas and to New Balance and whoever, you know, so that's, that's one of the things. And the other thing is just trust and, you know, workload and marketing. Like how do, what do we do with an athlete on a marketing side? What do we do? um for transparency with athletes from a technological standpoint what's our team that's behind us you know it's not just me it's it's robbie hughes and jeff hartwig and jordan rice and all these other people and bob siosik you know we have different people that support our our team so it's not just having one person doing everything for you so you know that's sort of our our pitch and becoming familiar with the athletes and being friendly with the athletes and you know any athlete that we take on I really want to feel like we have a true personal relationship with because what's the point otherwise, you know? Another big question I had was normally it's my understanding that the, the contracts end in the Olympic years. Is that right? Often. Yeah. So what has happened? I mean, obviously the 2020 Olympics are happening in 2021, hopefully at least. Yeah. So did, did most people just sort of extend it at another year at the same rate how, how did that work? What, what, what was the most common solution to that problem? The, the most common solution was, um, I hate to say it was sign new deals completely, but it depends on the age of the athlete. If it's an athlete that's 
in their prime, a lot of times they said, all right, we'll end the contract December 31st and they'll sign you a new four-year deal through the next, through 2024. Uh, that happened with a lot. Um, others that were maybe up in their early 30s and looking like they're approaching the end of the career, they said, all right, let's just do a one-year extension and keep you in 2021 and give an option for the next year. And then a lot of, a lot of the others just got let go, unfortunately. It's just, you know, had, had you not performed, they didn't think they the company didn't believe in you well they said well let's cut our losses now yeah it's unfortunate we sponsored them through this time period and hope to get a um an olympics out of them but we're going to cut our losses and move on it's unfortunate there's been a lot of that that's happened as well i think i talked to jonathan earlier about it i think and end of the year we had uh 30 athletes that were looking to get re-signed or extended and ended up with 19 moving on and couple more to go still hopefully okay one other one last question on the american track league here is about you know this is a meet that was held indoors and we've seen last summer there were a lot of meets held outdoors and people felt they were held pretty safely and then the big question is are we going to have an indoor track season we've seen a bunch of colleges have it have indoor meets now we've seen a pro you know this is a pro meet why do you guys decide to have these meets be indoors instead of outdoors? And are you confident, given that we're still in the middle of a pandemic, this meet was held safely? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we obviously didn't have fans allowed in there, uh, which is a big step. Um, every athlete that came to the meet was tested. Uh, well, let me tell you, that. the CDC recommended guidelines that USATF has come up with is that any athletes in moderate risk events have to have at least one PCR test in the seven days leading into the meet. And we adhere to that, but not only that, we took even the athletes that were in the low risk events and made them get PCR tests before coming. And then once they, everybody arrived, everybody was PCR tested as well. So everybody that was in the building um, was PCR tested by us on arrival and the vast majority of them had their PCR test in hand when they arrived anyways. Um, the only additions is would be the people from Arkansas that are already being tested once or twice a week by the university were there as well. So the, the team coaches and stuff like that and, and all that. So, you know, we probably had at most at any one time, 120 people in the building and every one of them had at least one PCR test and most of them two PCR tests ahead of time. Gotcha. It's a pretty cool operation, to be honest. Um, the natural state labs, um, they, uh, so they, they actually flew on in on Saturday to Fayetteville, um, tested everybody in a three-hour window, and then took the samples, flew them in their private jet to Little Rock, tested them, and by 1.15 a.m., we had all results, 103 negative PCR tests. Wow. Private jet service for this. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, we're looking forward to the next three meets. You know, like if the fields are as good as you said, I, I'm expecting at least one more world record here, whether it's from Cracker or some other event. Uh, I'm hoping to see that. We're, we're open for two at least, maybe three. <laughs> okay. Um, I have a few more eight questions just about things going on in the wider track and field world right now. One of the things I'm interested in, I'd like to hear your perspective as an agent. It seems to me that Nike has been letting more athletes go than usual at the end of this year. And it's kind of, you know, that's interesting. We're heading into an Olympic year or what is supposed to be an Olympic year. They've got a new man in control there uh, of sports marketing. It's Craig Masbach as opposed to 
John Capriotti, who was there, you know, for the last two decades or so. Like, and it kind of seems to me like they're not exercising right of first refusal as much as they've been in the past, which is essentially if your contract with Nike expires, they have six months essentially to match the best offer you can get. And someone like you, one of your best athletes, Sandy Morris, she was with Nike. And then on New Year's Day, she announces she has signed a new deal with Puma, which I found very interesting because obviously that means Nike didn't exercise their right of first refusal there. Like, what do you make of what's happening at Nike? Does it seem to you as if they're letting more contracts expire than usual right now? Yeah, I think a little bit more than usual they have. I mean, from my understanding and not speaking for them, but I, from my understanding, from the outside looking in, they've had cutbacks as a as a company and it seems like they're trying to streamline things a good bit. And, you know, Nike has historically sponsored more athletes in the sport than anybody. Um, and it looks like they're, they're letting... Uh, other brands share the burden a little bit more <laughs> now, you know, they, I, they, you mentioned Sandy Morris and that's an athlete that, you know, I feel is a pretty high profile athlete and, you know, Puma was very interested in her and made a very aggressive offer and Nike really considered it, but they, in the end, they decided not to, uh, not to match as they had the right to, but, uh, and I see quite a few other athletes that that has happened with moving forward as well. But I think, Nike's probably just being a little bit more strategic and streamlining uh, who they're going to be working with. Curious, sort of when the when we hit sort of the real recruiting period in June, July, whether or you know right after the NCAA's, uh, whether they'll be investing as much as in years past. I'm also interested. Like I've seen a couple athletes, like NCAA distance runners, have turned pro sort of in December or January, like in the middle of the season. Do do you think this is going to happen? That we're going to see some of the top sprinters like might not even run the outdoor season because of the uncertainty, or do you think it's going to be more traditional with most of them still turning pro right after NCAAs in June? I mean, I think it will end up being more traditional. There's, there's the chance it's not. I mean, if there, if there looks like there's a possibility that NCAAs will be canceled, um, or the outdoor season would be canceled. Then I think there is a high likelihood that you get a few, a handful leaving, but at the same time, it's not, like all the, the brands right now have tons of money they're trying to spend either. You know, it's it's a pretty limited budget right now. So, you know, I think there was a college coach that I spoke to recently that has a really good athlete right now that um, is worried about them going pro. And I said, oh, you, you shouldn't have to worry. I don't think there's money out there right now for them. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have a feeling these companies are going to buy their time, get to what might be their next fiscal year and get ready to sign athletes uh post ncaa's or olympic trials gotcha yeah and we we mentioned sandy morris going to puma and that was the, one of the other things i wanted to ask about because puma does seem like they're a company that is investing significantly more than years past in track and field i mean at this point they kind of own the pole vault because they've got mondo they've got sandy they've got they just signed renault lovelane you know they have several of the top pole vaulters they're starting to invest more in U.S. distance running. They have this pro group in North Carolina. They're getting ready to announce. Like, why do you think Puma's putting all this money in? Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, you know, I, I can only speak about Sandy, and they they've they were actually kicking themselves for four years because when Sandy was coming out of college, I had recommended them signing her, and they passed. And for four years, they've been kicking themselves, saying, "Oh, she's great. We wish we we wish we had had her." And you know, they felt like they, that she's a really, um, 
really great personality and a really great female role model. Um, and they really felt they wanted to attach that. And that's why they went after Sandy pretty aggressively. Um, but as far as what them making a big move, I think they're maybe a little bit uh, taking advantage of the opportunity. You know, there's, um, I, I feel like some of the more traditional brands that, that have been in this market have been trying to control the market a little bit and bring it down a little bit bring it back down to a, a much more affordable rate. And I'm happy Puma has stepped up in a lot of cases and, and still continue to pay a higher market value in keeping the market strong for us. So yeah, their motivation, I'm not sure on, but uh, I'm really, really happy that they've done it. Cause I think it's, it's great for the sport. Yeah. Well, I always say, I agree with you. Like the more brands you have supporting the sport, the, the better it is for the athletes, the better it is for the sport. It's a win-win. But for Puma, like, do you think any of this has to do with the fact that Bolt is no longer competing and that frees up some of their budget or are they still paying Bolt a crap load and they're just putting more money into the sport? Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah, I'm sure Bolt's not making as much as he did when he was running. <laughs> um, but uh, so that probably does free up some budget. But I think he had pretty much a special budget anyways. It wouldn't come out of this normal, the normal sports marketing budget that they have for track and field. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I think they're, they recognize the value and um, they see that, Hey, look, we can sign all these athletes. Now we've got a good four year stretch, hopefully with Olympics, worlds, worlds and Olympics and straight over four years. So it's great exposure for the Olympic sports in this next four years. So yeah, hopefully that's, uh, that's their thinking behind it. I would hope. Yeah, well, especially Americans. You got the you got two Olympics in the next four years, which are big for they're, they're always big in America. And then you've also got the World Championships in Eugene, which is going to be the biggest you know biggest track meet outside of the Olympics that we've ever hosted in this country. So it's yeah. it's a pretty big period for us. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and actually, speaking of the Olympics, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you know easy question here: Do you think there's going to be an Olympics this summer? Yes, I do. Why? <laughs> Um, I just can't see the Japanese having spent so much money to not make it happen. And I understand if they pull out of the Olympics now, they're going to save money. There's no question about it, <laughs> that, but it, it would have been billions and billions of dollars spent for no purpose in the end if they let it go. So I think that will go ahead. I think it's going to be a very different look than, than we're used to, obviously. I think it could be no fans or social distanced Japanese only fans, something like that. But I feel like they must go ahead uh, at all costs. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. I've, I've wavered back and forth. Last week I was thinking it wouldn't happen. And then this, this article came out um, saying that the Olympics were canceled. It's been squashed pretty, pretty quickly by other people, but you know, there are, most of the time when you hear something, there is something behind it, right? But this, in this case, it could be one that truly is not, uh, you know, it had no truth to it whatsoever other than just one person's speculation. Well, I should give credit to my boss, Walton Johnson, because that was his question. He wanted to ask about the Olympics. And that he, he had one follow-up, actually, which mm -hmm. I'm interested in as well. What are you telling your athletes? So what, I guess what are you hearing from your athletes? How optimistic are they that the games are going to go ahead? Yeah, a few athletes, you know, this all happened right before we all got together at the American Track League meet. So it was a little bit of the talk of the town, you could say, when we when we arrived in Fayetteville. But, um, you know, a lot of the athletes were devastated to hear see that article and hear that news. Um, but 
they, they've gotten pretty used to persisting without a, without an end goal right now. <laughs> you know, obviously it's uh, everything is up in the air. Even, I mean, shoot, we technically, we don't even know if the Super Bowl is really going to happen, right? It, it, things could take a shift and things could turn. And next thing you know, it's not happening. I think it's incredibly unlikely, but I also, I feel like these athletes have to prepare mentally that the games are going ahead and they have to believe that it's going ahead and right up until the time it's not, you know, then they have to be flexible in their mind. I remember having a conversation with Devin Allen back when the whole pandemic had just started and saying, okay, well, we're, you know, we were originally planning to start competing in early April. Let's uh, let's push that back six weeks and see what happens with this pandemic. And then after a few weeks as we started getting closer to that six week period, I said, okay, let's, let's push it back eight weeks. And, you know, we're just continually pushing it back. So you just have to be nimble and you have to be ready to adjust when needed. But I do think you have to approach it that, Hey, 100%, this is happening. Let's get ready. And if it doesn't, you just be nimble and adjust. Yeah. Well, I think the athletes showed last year, the ones that competed uh, showed that they can adjust pretty well and they're going to keep training even if they don't have that meet on the horizon. You know, we saw a lot of s- some incredible performances in Europe and then at, even at those smaller sprint meets, you know, Michael Norman, 986, Trayvon Bromel was running fast as well. So, yeah, I have I have confidence in the athletes that they'll, they'll be ready for this. Um, and even if there is an Olympics, I think they'll still be pretty good this summer. But anyway... Paul, appreciate uh, all the time here today joining us on the Let's Run podcast, uh, and we will keep tuned. The next edition of the American Track League is this Sunday in Fayetteville from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time on ESPN2, so tune in for that. And uh, like I I said, I'm expecting a couple world records, so thanks for coming on and uh, talking to us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Great. All right, bye. And this week's podcast is brought to you by Element. It's a new electrolyte drink without sugar. Go to drinklmnt.com slash let's run for a free sample. Just pay $5 shipping. That's drinklmnt.com slash let's run.